When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. Coming up on the show today, we talk to Bloomberg Tax and Congress reporter Laura Davison about her big scoop on Biden's capital gains tax increase plans. We'll get into the Republican infrastructure counterproposal. We'll talk about the uh, president's and uh, many world leaders' climate plans. We've got Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media and a former Biden campaign surrogate. John Englinder, an oceanographer, author, and expert on sea level rise. Joining us now is Bloomberg Tax and Congress reporter Laura Davison. Uh, big scoop today on President Joe Biden's plan uh, that he's supposed to detail next week to almost double the capital gains tax for those earning uh, $1 million or more. Laura, that's big political news. I'm curious, can you give us a sense of the economic scope of how much money this is supposed to raise for his next big uh, bill that he's proposing and how many people would be affected by this? Yeah, so in terms of dollars and cents, you know, this is a, a revenue raiser that would clock in, you know, around $370 billion. So, you know, in the scope of a, you know, north of $1 trillion plan that he's proposing, you know, this is, is just a portion of that. Uh, but he's, you know, he's layering several other things on top of this, looking at, you know, higher rates on income, as well as uh, higher estate tax rates and, and a whole bunch of other things. So for people um, in that $400,000 and above category, and particularly if you're making a million dollars or more, there are a lot of different ways. That, that your taxes would go up, uh, you know, really to the tune of collectively paying, you know, a trillion or a trillion and a half more over a decade. Now, this sounds like something that is going to get a lot of Republican pushback, uh, got some pushback, I guess, from the markets. Uh, they can push tax policy through Congress in a partisan way, I believe. But if he wants to do this with this American Families Plan that he's supposed to outline next week, how does the Biden side uh, envision this actually becoming law and getting it through Congress? So the Biden team has been very hands off on telling Congress, you know, exactly what to do. But Congress is very engaged on you. They have these two proposals, the infrastructure proposal paid for by corporate tax increases and this upcoming proposal looking at education and uh, child care, that sort of thing paid for by individual tax increases. And they're looking at, you know, both timing. Uh, They have, you know, a relatively short runway to pass, you know, what could be, you know, close to $4 trillion in spending, which is uh, just massive, um, as well as kind of how how much uh, political goodwill they have from their members. Democrats have 
really, really tight margins. So there's talk about whether they split this up and do it in two packages, whether they have a bipartisan proposal with some of the infrastructure elements that everyone can get on board with and then doing a Democratic-only proposal. You, if, if history is any guide here, Congress usually does less than does more, and uh, they're going to run into both some constraints both on timing as well as just the, the constraints of the budget reconciliation process uh, to get this through you know, by uh, the third quarter, which is what they're looking to do. Sure. Now, we've heard pushback from Republicans uh, to the $2.25 trillion infrastructure plan, but we know Biden is planning this next big families plan, uh, things that go beyond infrastructure in the economy. If this particular portion is going to raise a few hundred billion dollars, you say, how much else do they need to do to pay for that? What are the numbers we're talking about if there is this second major package? So the, 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 they already have come up with a, more than $2 trillion of corporate tax increases. That first part is paid for. In this second package, uh, they're also looking at this. Um, this it gets really technical, but basically it's another big capital gains tax hike uh, that comes when, when people die. Uh, tech, the, uh, under the current code, you can pass stuff on to your heirs, and it, those, those capital gains don't get taxed. Uh, this would tax it. So that would you know, add um, you know, almost double the just raising the rate proposal. They're also looking at raising the top income rate for those earning $400,000 or more up to, you know, about 40%, as well as the estate tax. So all told, they have about a, a trillion to a trillion and a half dollars worth of tax increases in there. That, of course, uh, is means that they need to get all of this through and they can't start negotiating and giving away a bunch bunch of big packages, uh, a bunch of big parts of this proposal without having to cut stuff on the spending side as well. Well, I, I touched on Republican pushback, but they've got such narrow margins in the House uh, and Senate, Democrats do. What's the feedback been from both sides so far? I know this is breaking news today, but what, do, what have lawmakers said so far about this? Republicans have panned this and said this is a, a terrible idea. It will kill jobs. It will kill investment. Democrats um, are generally more supportive of this. You know that there's been a, a, a push from a lot of members, particularly those that are more progressive, for several years saying that they sh- that work and wealth should be taxed the same, which is essentially what this proposal would do. The question is, how do one sort of your your Joe Mansions, your moderates feel about you know such big tax increases? You know we see we saw Mansion on the corporate tax rate say, hey, you know I don't want to go all the way to twenty eight percent. What about 25 percent. We could see similar reaction here uh, with, you know, some moderates saying, hey, let's, you know, let's go in this direction, but let's not go as far as you want to go, Mr. President. The other thing, too, is that there are some House Democrats who are really, really upset about this thing called the state and local tax deduction result. And they said, look, we're not going to vote for anything the president wants to do unless we get this this very valuable tax break back. So that's going to be a key part of negotiations going forward. Yeah, the mansion issues and the salt issues are definitely something to watch uh, on the Democratic side, uh, as well as Republican pushback. Laura Davison, uh, Bloomberg News tax and Congress reporter, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I want to bring in now uh, Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at it, it, HG Creative Media and a former uh, Biden campaign surrogate. We also have Jeannie Shanzano, Bloomberg Politics contributor. Uh, Jeannie, what do you make uh, about the, the political realism of this proposal? We can talk about economics and what this would do uh, to the tax code, but I, I'm, I'm looking at this plan and wondering if it stands any chance of becoming law in any way that reflects what Biden is uh, set to announce next week. 
nobody can be surprised that this is what is under serious consideration and has been floated today. It's long been on Joe Biden's radar. It, it's not really the outright wealth tax like like Elizabeth Warren has talked about, but it is it is approaching something that progressives can get behind. But as you talked about in a 50-50 Senate, they cannot lose one Democratic vote. And, uh, you know, that's going to be the challenge. So one thing I would I would just offer here is, you know, you look at the states like New York and California, which already have high tax rates. You combine that with this proposal, if it indeed goes forward. And they're saying New York's tax rate combined state and federal may be about 52, 53 percent. California, about 56, 57. And I'm wondering, can really Chuck Schumer push that through and maintain his seat in New York. So we've got considerations like that as well that I think make this a very, very tough thing to imagine a closely divided Senate is going to be able to pass. So in terms of feasibility, it's difficult, but there is a campaign aspect to this. And if you look back at uh, the $1.9 trillion stimulus bill, the Biden uh, administration and Democrats in Congress talked about wanting to back up what they said on the campaign trail. Uh, Kevin Walling, I want to bring you in. Uh, What does this plan that we're going to hear more about next week uh, do to follow up on the way Joe Biden campaigned for president? Yeah, Jack, it's, it's good to be with you. Uh, and again, this is something that, as you rightly point out, uh, President Biden really campaigned on. And, and he really made the point uh, that, uh, you know, taxing uh, labor should be the same as taxing uh, gains in the financial market. So, you know, I think he's taking kind of a populist uh, stroke, as he did uh, during the campaign, uh, to now deliver on uh, some of these promises that he made uh, during the campaign itself. Um, and I think he, you know, is setting it up as kind of a cudgel, I think, for 2022. Um, and he's going to make the case and uh, he's going to barnstorm a lot of these different races that were so close uh, and saying that we uh, are paying for a lot of these investments that he's going to roll out next week. As you rightly point out, Jack, as part of this family's part of the package on, on the infrastructure and jobs front uh, and say he's going to pay for it by raising corporate taxes and raising taxes on the most wealthy in this country. And I think it's going to be an interesting setup in terms of this, like I said, a populist kind of message um, in some of these key districts. Now, to Jeannie point, Jeannie's point is a very good one. You know, I, I don't know how well that sells in, for example, Orange County, where we need to win back a few of those races, mm-hmm. or in New York State uh, with, uh, uh, you know, Senate Majority Schumer, if he can deliver something like this, uh, protecting his left flank against the AOCs of the world, but also the millionaires and, and billionaires that are fleeing. Uh, New York in droves. So it's going to be an interesting way in terms of how this is all uh, rolled out, I think, in the, in the coming days uh, from this administration. Well, we got a response from White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki uh, at today's briefing laying out sort of the Biden administration's justification for this. Uh, we have sound on that. Let's play that. There's a need to invest in uh, child care. There's a need to invest in early childhood education and making the, our kids and the workers of the next generation more competitive. And he should propose a way to pay for it. Uh, His view is that that should be on the backs, that can be on the backs of the wealthiest Americans who can afford it and uh, corporations and businesses who can afford it. Well, that sounds like a campaign message as much as a legislative message. Uh, Kevin, very quickly, uh, where do you see this playing? You mentioned a couple examples, but in 2022, what are the key races where you think this particular issue is going to be a real factor? Yeah, I, I think, and Jeannie's absolutely right. I mean, Senator Schumer's up uh, in two years, majority leader. I, again, he has 
an interesting uh, set of circumstances on his uh, on his plate in terms of the progressive left within the New York uh, delegation challenging him. Uh, so I think that is going to be primo in terms of whether he negotiates himself out of a, uh, out of a Senate seat potentially uh, as the incumbent majority leader. So that's certainly key. You have a lot of uh, key races in California, as I mentioned, New York State, uh, other high tax areas with that salt deduction. As Jeannie mentioned, you got Tom Swazi, for example, leading the charge uh, in the New York delegation, among others, to push back. And again, you also are going to have a lot of members running in new districts in those states as well um, with redistricting. So I, I think California and New York especially will be key. Right. All right. Uh, coming up, uh, Kevin, stick with us. We're going to talk about the uh, Republican response to the infrastructure uh, proposal. That'll be another interesting issue, uh, as well as climate issues that came up today. Uh, for now, I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. Face it, your business is unique. It faces challenges and risks that are specific to your industry and to the skills you and your team bring to every challenge. You need experienced insurance professionals. The Hartford accepts the challenge. The Hartford understands that protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can help provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-sized companies like yours to easily manage risk from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. With experience in underwriting, risk engineering services and claims, the Hartford faces any challenge to deliver innovative, customizable solutions that your industry and your unique company demand. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. Thank you, Charlie. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media and a former Biden campaign surrogate. Uh, Republican senators coming up with uh, big news today, proposing a $586 billion counteroffer uh, to the president's infrastructure plan, which totaled two, on, two and a quarter trillion dollars. Uh, a lot of news from Republicans on what they don't want to include uh, compared to what we see from Democrats. Let's listen uh, to sound from Senator Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania. While President Biden would like to do all kinds of things that have nothing to do with infrastructure, My view is we can have that discussion at some point in time, but what we ought to focus on is that which we seem to have agreement on, which is a significant investment in infrastructure. Climate issues, uh, in particular electric vehicles, uh, seem to be a bit of a a boogeyman for Republicans. We also have sound from Senator John Barrasso, Republican from Wyoming. Let's play that. He puts more money in his proposal for electric vehicles than he does for roads, bridges, ports, airports, and waterways combined. So it's time to say we want to do things that are really in the best interest of the American people, what the American people are asking for. 
Kevin, I want to go to you on the politics of the climate portions in the infrastructure package. Uh, we hear the phrase Green New Deal. We hear criticisms of electric vehicle related infrastructure and tax credits that aren't really infrastructure. Uh, is this a campaign message that we're going to hear going into 2022? Or what's the logic behind the focus on and the divide over electric vehicles in particular? Yeah, Jack, it's a great question. I was kind of struck by that being one of the only specific pay-fors that the Republican proposal included in terms of a, a tax on new electric vehicles. Um, it's certainly going to be, I think, a, a, in, in, obviously an issue with the midterms coming up. Um, it, it was interesting. Obviously, you played Senator Pat Toomey's um, uh, uh, comments in terms of that rollout. I was interested to see his colleague uh, from Pennsylvania, Bob Casey, say um, you know, almost immediately that it fails to meet the, the moment that we're in, I think. You know, the Republicans are, you know, with their proposal, maintaining the status quo, heavy emphasis on roads, uh, traditional kind of what they have hammered on um, as infrastructure. Uh, and, of course, it's, you know, uh, pretty much a quarter of what the size of the Biden jobs uh, in the infrastructure package is. Um, so you saw some Democrats out of the gate uh, kind of condemning it, pushing it aside. Uh, I'll note uh, Chris Coons, who's obviously a, a key Biden ally uh, in the Senate, was actually encouraged to see the, the Republicans come forward at least with something. Um, even if it's that uh, small, even smaller than what President Trump talked about, a $1.5 trillion package um, when he was in office. So it's interesting to see the different elements to your question within the Democratic caucus uh, reacting to it. But, of course, it's only been out for the, the past couple of hours or so. So I think folks are still weighing what they're seeing. Yeah, we've heard a, a mixed reaction from Democrats. I believe a couple of days ago, Peter DeFazio, the House Transportation and Infrastructure Chairman, even said, you know, something in the 600 to 800 billion dollar range uh, could be at least a starting point. Uh, but if you hear uh, comments from Bernie Sanders, who's now the Senate Budget Chairman, uh, saying the the pushback from Republicans on taxes, uh, it sounds like there's a, a divide among Democrats. Jeannie Shanzano, I'm just trying to figure out: Are we talking? about a Grand Canyon between the two parties or a Potomac River when you hear $2.25 trillion from Biden and then $560 some or $68 billion from Republicans? Well, I, am I assuming that the Grand Canyon is bigger? Because that's what I would say. It is an enormous division. <laughs> and you're right that DeFazio said he was open to it and right he should. Um, look, at, there, there's very little that um, room to maneuver here. So the Democrats have a couple choices. They either push this thing through on reconciliation and they are going to then have to own the fact that they passed infrastructure in this, you know, partisan way or they need to be willing to compromise. There's really no other way around that. And so I think what we're seeing out of the administration, at least in my reading, is that they're going to try to push this through on reconciliation. I don't think there's any way around that at this point, unless they're willing again to, you know, pull, look at, you know, Chris Coons or something idea about splitting this thing into two, but seems to be very little appetite for that. And even when we talk about the Democrats doing this on their own unilaterally, there still is, as we were just talking about, issues there. You've got the people in my area up in the Northeast saying it's a no-go for Democrats there without the SALT movement on the SALT. So a lot of big questions there. Well, I got to follow up with you, Jeannie. When you talk about getting this done through reconciliation, it's such an opaque process. Uh, how much can they actually do and what's going to get cut out if they go the partisan route? Well, it, it's going to a little bit depend on what the parliamentarian has to say. But if they can do it on reconciliation, it looks like they will be able to do that. 
that. There may be things they can't touch. So that would be anything that the parliamentarian decides doesn't fit under a budget sort of issue. So they may have to swallow that. But I do think that's probably the only way they're going to be able to go if they want to go as big as they say. That's going to be a, a real challenge, and I, I'd say it's an opaque issue because nobody actually entirely knows the answer to that question of what they can do in a partisan way. Uh, but that seems to be the X factor, uh, unless there's a, a real kumbaya moment uh, in Washington with uh, Republicans and Democrats coming a lot closer. Uh, again, $2.25 trillion from Biden in the infrastructure proposal, uh, and then $568 billion from Republicans. I want to keep this conversation going a little bit more on uh, the GOP infrastructure plan, but also get to the climate issues today. Uh, that's up next. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. I'm still here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano and Kevin Walling, Democratic strategist at HG Creative Media and a former Biden campaign surrogate. Uh, Kevin, I'm looking through the list, and this isn't legislative language yet, but a, a Republican roadmap on what they want to see on infrastructure. And I do see the traditional stuff, roads, bridges, transit sh- systems. Uh, I, I'm curious, what can you define for us, uh, what do you see as actually being the bipartisan corpus of what must definitely end up becoming law in an infrastructure package? Yeah, Jack, it's a great, great question. I, I think obviously roads and bridges, you know, we, we have so many uh, uh, situations in this country that we're falling you know, behind in terms of actually these safety concerns. So that's certainly an area in which uh, folks can come together. Um, also, I'll note, you know, you've seen some other um, motions between uh, members specifically like Chris Coons, John Cornyn of Texas, um, floating different ideas in terms of bi- a bipartisan approach. I'll note, you know, Senator Carper, my former boss from Delaware, um, the chairman of the, the Environment and Public Works Committee working across party lines with the ranking member, Shelley Moore Capito on uh, drinking water. Uh, for example, I think that's one key area uh, where you'll see parties uh, working together um, on those kinds of things. Safety, obviously, um, ports, uh, a key issue for a lot of members uh, where it transcends party politics. It's more regional politics in, in terms of Republicans and Democrats uh, working together. So roads, bridges, drinking water, all those kinds of things, I think, are avenues in which you'll see some uh, either a piecemeal approach in terms of breaking it out, bipartisan approach, uh, or you know pushing in some kind of core capacity together. And while I've still got you here, I, I know the, there's been a, a development, a, I guess an evolution on uh, infrastructure, which makes me wonder about an urban-rural divide. Broadband infrastructure, I should say, uh, is, is a real issue in a lot of rural areas. But of course, we've heard Republicans saying, look, we don't want to spend a lot of money on Amtrak. Uh, is this a, an issue where urban and rural America is kind of politically pitted against each other? Or is there a lot of middle ground in that regard? 
Yeah, Jake, I, I, I actually think you're right in terms of that, that approach. It might boil down to less, you know, what's the initial behind people's names and, and where do they actually come from. Um, and we know, you know, living in a, in a COVID world, how important broadband is, especially in rural areas. So that might be a uniting factor. There's 65 a billion or so uh, for broadband in the Republican proposal, about 100 or so billion uh, in uh, President Biden's proposal. So I think that could obviously be uh, some point of, uh, of agreement uh, and just kind of negotiating around the edges for sure. Uh, guys, I, I need to bring up the other big news of the day. Uh, it wasn't just capital gains taxes. It wasn't just the Republican response on infrastructure. Uh, the climate, virtual climate summit, uh, big headline news from that is Biden's promise uh, that the U.S. will cut its greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030. Now, there are also questions about what does China do? What does India do? What does the rest of the world uh, do? We have some sound I'd like to tee up uh, from President Biden. Let's play uh, his words on the uh, emissions targets. By maintaining those investments and putting these people to work, the United States sets out on the road to cut a greenhouse gases in half, in half by the end of this decade. And he also kind of framed this as a, a jobs bill. Let's play that as well. Those that do take action and make bold investments in their people in clean energy future will win the good jobs of tomorrow and make their economies more resilient and more competitive. Kevin, while I've got you here for this segment, I want to ask, is this framing in response to uh, 2016's, you know, I remember Trump campaigning on working for Pittsburgh and not Paris. How, how have the politics of these issues changed the past few years, if at all? Yeah, Jack, I think you're absolutely right. Of course, as you you know reported on just a few weeks ago, Biden traveled to Pittsburgh to announce that we were rejoining Paris uh, and framing it through that jobs perspective. Um, and I was super encouraged to see you know the president show some real strong leadership. He brought 40 um, countries uh, together, including some of our not so great allies at the moment in terms of the competition factor with China and certainly the the, um, the situation with Russia. Um, and I think it's a really smart narrative and lens. Um, that this administration is talking about uh, the climate crisis, and he called it an existential crisis of our time this morning um, from the East Room, uh, framing it as uh, not a jobs versus climate, but a jobs and climate, uh, and encouraging world leaders to think about it in that way, in almost a global competition uh, for the jobs of the future. I think that's going to be a really strong argument, not just heading into 2022, potentially the reelect, um, but also for the sake of our, our planet on, on Earth Day. Jeannie Shanzano, I, I want to ask you, you understand how, uh, how, how promises become law. Uh, one of the promises that the White House laid out today was basically doubling financial aid to develop, developing nations from the U.S. Uh, maybe there's some flexibility there, but it, in terms of financial commitments, very quickly, how much can a president do on his own or how much does Congress need to step in? When it comes to the financial aspect, it is almost 100% Congress, right? They have the power of the purse, so presidents can make promises all they want, but to get them delivered takes going through Congress, and that is the rub and the frustration for all presidents. So that is one of those things that he will not be able to do unilaterally.
Coming up, we're going to have uh, John Englander, who's an oceanographer, uh, an author, expert on sea level rise, talk to us. His latest book is Moving to Higher Ground. Seems like there's a lot uh, of work left to to see from the president in determining uh, today's promises into reality, a, a real international aspect of that uh, as well. Uh, so we're going to keep this conversation going uh, on the climate issues uh, with John Englander. Uh, and Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. I was Kevin Walling, Democrat strategist at HG Creative Media uh, and a former Biden campaign surrogate. Uh, We'll get to the conversation with John Englander and Jeannie is sticking with me. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. I'm here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Shanzano. We've also got a guest joining us, John Englander, an oceanographer, author, uh, and expert on sea level rise. His latest book is Moving to Higher Ground. John, thanks so much for joining us. I've got to ask the big, broad question. When you heard the U.S. promises about cutting greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030 and heard what other countries had to say, uh, my simple question is, is this enough? It's not enough, but it's a great start. And we should um, applaud the progress, but it's not going to solve the problem. When we talk about enough, a lot of this conversation has been about a 1.5 Celsius degree increase or a 2 degree Celsius increase. Uh, Can you give us a little bit of just the scope? Uh, If we were to stay on the track we're on now, what are the numbers we're talking about and what do those numbers mean? Well, okay, we've already had 1 degree Celsius of warming. And for simplicity, let's double it for Fahrenheit for Americans. So we've already had that. To keep it to another uh, degree, uh, the two degrees total, would be doubling the warming we've already had. And we're already seeing the effects of warming all over the planet, from wildfires to melting ice sheets, uh, high temperatures, heavier rainfall, et cetera. So it's like any problem. You've got to take a stab at it. And reducing the uh, temperature, um, you know, the trajectory we're on, is is really important, and I want to applaud what was done today. But that's still warming. They're, what they're talking about is reducing the warming by reducing the emissions to half of what they are currently. That would be half the increase in warming. And, and John, um, I noticed that Scientific America and others have moved from talking, as we used to, about climate change and climate crisis to now a climate emergency. And, you know, I thought that was really important because part of this, I think, is changing people's hearts and minds about what what is trying to be done. You know, you noted it may not be enough, but it's still a big societal transformation. So can you just talk a little bit about why this is an emergency and what the impact is going to be on things like refugees and others if we don't change things fast? Sure. I mean, again, we can look at wildfires as one metric because of in a hotter world with drier timber and warmer temperatures, we're going to see greater wildfires. And we've seen that all over the world from California to Australia, to China, to Siberia 
in the last two years. Terrible wildfires, unprecedented. So that's one, ex- one extreme. We're seeing strange weather patterns, extreme storms. Even the snowfall in Texas is all part of weather destabilization as the Arctic ice cap melts and with warmer temperatures. So the, the heat waves, the heavier rainfall and drought, strangely enough, um, all come on a warmer planet. And then my topic is rising sea level, which comes from the ice sheets on Greenland and Antarctica melting. And that's just going to continue in a warmer world. So as you say, refugees will, will uh, be a problem as people abandon low-lying areas all over the world. And one thing I just want to follow up really quickly, because I know this is your area. I understand that if rapid action isn't taken, they are talking about two to 300 million refugees in Southeast Asia as a result of these rising sea levels by 2050. Is that what you're seeing ahead? Well, it's really hard to come up with any number, whether it's 200 or 300 million. I mean, there's different ways of calculating that based on what happens to the local economy, the infrastructure, the global supply chains, et cetera. It's, um, it's kind of like predicting the pandemic, you know, at the moment, which we're, we're seeing the difficulties to project where there's a lot of variables and a lot of, um, a lot of unknowns, actually. And, uh, but even if it's only 100 million people, by mid-century, as you say. I mean, and it's not just Southeast Asia. I mean, Bangladesh, Vietnam, sure, India, uh, but part of Shanghai, uh, um, and of course, parts of America. I mean, it's it's coastal, low-lying cities all over the world. I like to say that there's 10,000 coastal communities that are exposed to rising sea level. So I, I know it's obvious why there's so much discussion about the humanitarian aspect, the risk to day-to-day people. But I do have to ask, especially with a scientist on, uh, not asking a, a general or a lieutenant, but a scientist about the national security aspect of this. Uh, if I want to sign up to take a cruise through the Northwest Pac- Passage, I think that's something I can do now. And there seems to be concern, especially here in the U.S., that if Russia wants to have free movement around the Arctic, that's a, an increasing concern. Uh, in less of a, a humanitarian sense, more of a military sense, John, do you as a scientist have a warning on what the repercussions are? Yeah, thanks for asking, Jack. Uh, you know, in the last year or so, the world struggled with a million refugees from Africa coming across the Mediterranean into ports like Italy and Greece and so on, and, and that kind of dislocation. And we, of course, have our own problem at, at the borders in the United States. But you, as you point out, if sea level rises just a meter, about three feet, there are going to be tens of millions of refugees. It has huge destabilization, economic impacts, humanitarian concerns, but national security. Uh, now, I've got to ask an overarching question after the, the tone we heard from Biden uh, and the emphasis that the U.S. has seemed to place on positioning itself as a leader on climate change after the Trump administration. Uh, you know, we cover the issues on tax incentives, on regulations, on spending, but there seemed to be so much of a focus on reclaiming a moral high ground. Politically, is there a, a tangential advantage to the Biden administration that you see in, in making moral arguments like this? What's the effect of that? Well, actually, well, I appreciate the question. I actually 
purposely stay out of politics and morality arguments only because that, that's so fraught with different opinions. I like to stay, as a, as a scientist, I like to stay on solid ground and stick with the simplest issues that uh, sea level moves up and down tens or hundreds of feet, actually, in geologic history. We are now facing the prospect of five or ten feet of sea level rise this century. And if, if we don't, you know... Um, get things right. And, and certainly what we heard today is a big step in the right direction, let's be clear. But to your opening question, even if we cut our greenhouse gas emissions in half by 2030, that does not stop the warming. It slows the warming. And right now, the ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica are melting faster and faster. And melting of the ice sheets means sea level is going to rise, and that's going to take away real estate all over the world in coastal areas. So, John, I know you said you want to stay out of politics, and um, I, I wonder if you would just uh, allow me to ask you this question. If you were advising the president or indeed became president yourself, what would you like to see happen? What would you like the Biden administration or any administration to do at this point, given where we are today? I think we need to do three things. We need to do things like we saw today or heard today about slowing the reduction of greenhouse gases, slowing the warming uh, by using various economic incentives, frankly, pricing carbon and carbon dioxide or greenhouse gases one way or another. The second thing is, even while we're doing that, we need to be more resilient. We need to plan for everything from wildfires to heavy rainfall to droughts, um, the kind of extreme weather we're getting. That's resiliency, and that has to happen at the same time. And the third thing we have to do simultaneously with the first two is to begin adapting for certain things like rising sea level. There is no scenario that has a stopping sea level where it presently is. We've gotten fooled because sea level hasn't changed in 6,000 years. And uh, so I believe we have to be sustainable with energy. We have to be resilient in our planning for the near term. And we have to begin adaptation in advance of things like sea level rise which are going to happen, at least to some degree. John, uh, to close, I've got, a, I hope, a fairly quick one for you. How much of your, you know, you say we're not on track to, we're only on track to try to cut the increase. How much of your concerns are the numbers uh, from the U.S.? How much is this due to what we see from China or India? Uh, which areas and which economies are the ones that are the most concerning to you? Well, Jack, you've, you've named the top three, which is great. Certainly the United States, China, and India are the big three contributors. Um, but this has to be something tackled by the 200-some nations of the world, of course. But it starts with leadership. So, so um, the, the question of whether the U.S. put most of the load in in the, in the last uh, 50 years and whether China's doing it this decade, that's the kind of thing the politicians or, or um, you know, experts can argue about. What we can applaud is that they all got to the table today, 40 major nations, including the U.S. and China, taking leadership roles and saying we have to tackle this emergency now. John Englander, I almost succeeded in getting a scientist to jump headfirst into the political debate. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us. John Englander is an oceanographer, author, expert on sea level rise, uh, and his latest book is Moving to Higher Ground. Uh, Real good insights on... um, 
on, on the scientific aspects. Uh, and Jeannie, so I, I think you asked some very good questions uh, that, that touch on the political aspects here. Uh, big day in news, capital gains tax increase, Republican response on infrastructure. That'll be a big story going forward uh, and major, uh, major uh, global action and conversation, at least, on climate change. Thank you again uh, to John Englander, Jeannie Shanzano, uh, Laura Davison earlier, and Kevin Walling. Uh, that's it for me. That's our, sh- our show today. I'm Jack Fitzpatrick. This is Bloomberg. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.